Please join with me um, as we pray together before we get to the message. Heavenly Father, thank you that you hear us and that you are the God of the universe, the creator of all things. You've made each one of us to follow you, to know you, and to love you. And would you teach us that now as we open up your word in a book in the Old Testament and read of a very flawed man, yet your promises and your goodness and your sovereignty is greater than our flaws, and would we rest in that? Father, I pray for our city as there are many difficulties and complexities and challenges that families face. I ask that you would be their hope, that you surround them with Christians, that they would speak your wonderful good news and they would hear it and would bring them great delight to know you as their Savior and as their friend and King. God, we pray for our communities, many of which are hurting. There's much loss. There's much turmoil. And God, I ask that you bring guidance and your healing power through the gospel. I pray that in our city, in Whitehorse, we'd engage in your word, that we would love the Bible because we love the precious Savior. And for those who do not know you, Father, I ask that you would open their hearts and their minds to follow you and delight in you above everything this world has to offer. So, Father, as I open 1 Samuel chapter 11, I pray that you give me the words to speak, that those who are here listening physically or those online, that they would be encouraged by who you are, your character and your goodness. And we pray. We pray all these things in the matchless and beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're in a book called First Samuel. It's in the Old Testament. Before I begin, I need to give a listener's discretion warning. This chapter is quite disturbing. It has talk of sex, rape, murder. And as we are going through a series, a year-long series through a Bible, there are many delightful and good parts of the Bible. In fact, it is all good. And it points to God's goodness. And the very dark chapters which we read, this is one of them, where it's an example for us and how we are to live and be in relationship with God. So just a warning for Samuel chapter 11. We're in the first, well, we're doing the whole chapter. If you're at the top of a hill and you have a ball, you're holding the ball, and the ball's teetering to go down the hill. As you push it, and as it goes further down the hill, it gains speed, it gains momentum. That's what happens in avalanches, what can just be a very small fraction of the mountain that has broken. As it gains momentum, it's picking up more snow and more speed. And that what's, that's what makes avalanches so deadly. We call it the snowball effect. As the ball rolls down, it gathers steam. And this is true of life, and this is true of our Lies are not so good parts of our lives. Our sin, what starts off as something very small, can potentially grow into something very deadly. There's a man, he was uh, part of this book called Dangerous Calling. And in this book, Dangerous Calling, he was describing his story and how he would go to a coffee shop. He'd go to a coffee shop every morning and he'd do his work. He was a minister of the gospel, he was a preacher, he was a pastor. And he'd go every morning, he'd order his coffee, and he'd sit down and 
He'd be on his computer. He'd be doing his work. And he noticed on the other side of the coffee shop, there's a very attractive woman. And they would go at the same time, and he'd notice her um, each time he'd go. And then he began to not just glance, now was staring, and week after week he would move closer to where she was sitting. And weeks would pass and months would pass and this would happen. She wouldn't notice her, he thought. And as he was letting what was just a glance become more than a glance, he's a married man, he has children. He doesn't know anything about this woman, except that he's very attracted to her. When she gets up to leave from the coffee shop this particular day, she gets into her car. He walks to his car and follows her home. He gets to her doorstep where she had gone into her home and she's about to knock on the door and it finally dawns on him what he's doing, what he's thinking. He goes into counseling. He stopped going to that coffee shop. He never saw this woman again. What started off as a glance was growing like a snowball and gaining momentum. And this is the story of David. As we read about this, this, this man named David, King David, King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he sexually assaults a woman named Bathsheba. And what starts off for him as just a glance becomes something much more deadly. And he gained momentum, and his sin was piling up. It started off as a glance. And King David's story is a cautionary tale for each of us. And how it's so easy, how we can so easily get entangled in our sin. If we don't stop it and kill it right away. So what I want us to get from this chapter in Second Samuel chapter 11 is, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The books of 1st and 2nd Samuel in the Old Testament were the stories of failing leaders. People, God's people, who you think are to lead the land well and lead the people with dignity, honor, and liberty in the name of God for justice and for mercy. They fail. They continue to fail, just like modern-day leaders continue to fail us. That's why our hope is not in these kings and these presidents and prime ministers. Our king is God. He is the king of kings. That's why we look to him. And as we read this story of this brave military leader named David, he's also a poet, a musician, a shepherd. He's a very rounded resume. He's also a very flawed man. David is the one who defeated the ten-foot giant Goliath. The famous tale of David and Goliath is this David. He's described in the Bible as someone, as a man after God's own heart. As a man after God's own heart. But he's just as flawed as any other king, and he's just as flawed as you and I. And so let's begin in the first verse of Second Samuel. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab 
he's a military leader, and the Israelite, Israelite army to fight the Ammonites, the Israel's, en- Israel's enemy. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. We're going to pause there. And so what we like to do here at the Northern Collective is we like to let the meaning of the text of the Bible be the meaning of our message, and we want to teach the fullness of God's Word as best we can. So we're going to go verse by verse here. I'm going to talk about it. We're going to read it. We're going to talk about it. What are its implications for us? What does it say about God? How should we live? So we're going to pause here. It's a time when the kings go to battle. They're going off to war. The military commander Joab is sent off to fight the Ammonites with the military. But at the end of this verse, however, King David stayed behind. So if you're in a movie, instead of following the war, it's actually the movie stays on David and what he's about to do. It says he stayed behind in Jerusalem. The original language, which is Hebrew, it's closer to he was sitting. He was sitting at home, chilling, watching Netflix or whatever. He just stayed behind as his army goes to war. David is a great military leader. If you read the books of First and Second Samuel, you'll see he's a great military king. And when, in a time when it's time for the kings to go to war, he stays behind. This is very bizarre. What's he doing at home? Verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, he woke up from a nap, kings get very tired, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed her purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. Pause again. So David wakes up from his nap, and he goes for a walk on his palace roof. And the way this land is set up is, well, the people who live on the hill have more money and more power, and so the palace is on top of this hill, and everyone else is down below. And so the way Jerusalem is set up is that these people who have these homes, um, when the women are having their periods, they need places of privacy, obviously, to clean themselves, Um, which was part of a Levitical law of cleanliness at the time, they would go to the rooftops and bathe, totally normal. This is not like 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 an Olympic swimming pool and she's just rich and lavish. No, she's she's doing her, her cleansing before God in a very private rooftop area. But David sees her. And what he should have done like many of us should do when we're on the internet or when we're at the grocery store and these magazines, all this, you should, you see it and you look away. My friend described it as basketball eyes. You see it, basketball bounces off, not sticky eyes. You don't stick to it. He should have looked away, but he didn't. And a glance became a glare. 
and became more. He sends people to get her and he rapes her and she becomes pregnant. Instead of killing his sin right away, he embraces it and he goes and retrieves her. In a book called Job in the Old Testament, in chapter 31 it says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. I made a covenant with my eyes. Men, women struggle with sexual impurity and it starts with the eyes. Make a covenant with your eyes. That's what Job is saying. Maybe you need to safeguard your computer, your phone, your tablet, whatever it is. I encourage you to purchase something called covenant eyes if this is a problem for you. Covenant eyes. It's $20 a month. It tracks what you're looking at on your computer and it sends it to someone who you trust so they can hold you accountable. You can talk about it. You're not in this alone. Make a covenant with your eyes. That's what David should have done. But instead, he uses his power to take Bathsheba. He took something that wasn't his. A beautiful woman who belonged to a family who is very loyal to the royal family. David treated her like a meal, and when he was done, just threw her away, sent her home. And this is the formula for sin, for our rebellion and breaking God's laws. The formula is this. We see something, we want something, and then we take it. You see it, you want it, because it's good, it's desirable, and then you take it. We do that. And this is the first formula and only formula. And we get this from the very first sin in the Bible when God created a good world and everything was for God's glory and honor and everything is good and the garden is there for you and you are here with your wife, man and woman to enjoy one another and everything. Cultivate the land. Be free. Enjoy my presence. But just don't eat from this tree in the middle of the garden. That's it. That's it. But our flesh, right? When we're told not to do something, don't we just say, okay, well, I never thought about that, but now I'm thinking about it and I'm going to go do it. They go to the garden and they see it. They saw that the fruit was desirable despite what God has said. They see it and they want it and then they take it. And it had implications for all of us. It cursed all of humanity. The rebellion against God is what made sin enter into the world. This is original sin. And when we sin, this is what we do. We see it, we want it, and then we take it. This is what David did. He saw, he saw Bathsheba. And if it was an accident, no foul. Just look away. But he saw it, and he saw that she was beautiful and desirable to the eyes. She was someone of unusual beauty. The Hebrew is very attractive to look at. He wanted her, and he sent people to take her, and he sexually assaulted her. And instead of killing his sin and listening to God's word, which is very clear, for example, God's word in Exodus chapter 20 Verse 14, it says, You shall not 
commit adultery. Sex is designed to be between a man and a woman in a covenant promise relationship in marriage. Everything outside of that is adultery. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not yearn for her. You shall not long for her. She is not yours. She does not belong to you. Do not see her and then want her and take her. She is God's daughter. She is not yours. She is married. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And he ultimately sinned against God himself. And this momentary lapse, and this momentary lapse, Bathsheba comes and says, I'm pregnant. And these are the only recorded words of her in the entire chapter. I'm pregnant. And, but maybe it's not David's kid. Maybe it's not David's kid. She's married to Uriah, and, well, you know, maybe she just wants his money. No. It is clearly David's child, because in verse 4, it says, she had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. She cannot be pregnant when she was on the palace or on her own roof bathing. It is clearly David's son or a child. She's pregnant with David's child. So what does David, David the king do next? Verse 6. Then David sent word to Joab, which is one of the military commanders, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home? Why didn't you go home last night after being so far away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. We'll stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. What is going on here? He invites Uriah over, King David. Bring me Uriah. Gives him a little gift, like, hey, buddy. What? You should go home. Go home with your wife. And why does, he, why does he keep trying to do this? So that Uriah can go home and sleep with his wife and cover up his sin. So it looks like Uriah went home and got his wife pregnant. Because why didn't you go home? He was like, well, everyone else is sleeping in these fields and in all these places. Why, why would I go home? I'm a loyal military servant. I'm going to stay here. David tried to get him drunk. And then verse 13 he couldn't get Uriah to go home with his wife. 
David is trying to cover up his sin. But the plan's not working. His cover-up is not working. So David goes to plan B. Verse 14. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city fight, city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. We should be killing our sin or it's going to be killing us. And David here, instead of killing his sin, decides to kill Uriah to cover it up. He should have taken the time and the energy to kill his sin. He should have apologized to Uriah and Bathsheba. He should have confessed to God and begged for forgiveness. He should have repented, turned away from it. And now Uriah is dead. And how does King David respond to the news that he murdered Uriah? Verse 18. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there will be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech's son of Gideon killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one day and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. King David just murdered one of his top soldiers. In the Bible, he's described as one of the 30 top military fighters of his army. And in verse 21 of this chapter, it says Uriah was killed too. He was also killed in this stupid, selfish, sinful, evil plan of David's. He was also killed. And then King David tells the messenger, Tell the military commander Joab that it's all good. It's okay. Don't be discouraged. Sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. Just fight harder next time. Instead of killing his sin, he's just hiding it. But Bathsheba and God had different thoughts. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. And she became one of his wives, 
Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. You notice in that whole chapter, there's no reference to God. He did not consult God. God did not speak with him that we know of, that is recorded. And the first mention of God in this whole chapter says the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And God is mad. So in verse 25, when David was speaking to the messenger, he's saying, it's all good. Tell, tell Job not to be discouraged. Literally, it says, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Now in verse 27, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Literally, it is, but the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So what David saw was, it's all good. It's fine. It's not a big deal. It's not harming anybody. God is saying, that is evil. We live in a world like that, where we're confusing good and evil, calling evil things good, and good things evil. And that's the kind of world we get when it's totally subject to opinion and random subjectivity. It's just your opinion. Whatever's good to you is fine. Abort the baby. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what God says. There is grace for those who have sinned. And this is the story of the scriptures that through flawed men and women who make evil choices, and this is all of us, God's promises are greater than our failure. And God's greatness is better than our flaws. And his promises will never fail. David's sin was evil, but so is ours. And this is not just a story of David's sin. This is also the story of ours. We must acknowledge the danger we are to ourselves. We must acknowledge the danger we are to ourselves. When David's at home on the palace, he just woke up from a nap, you know, seems pretty pristine and quiet and good. The military's fighting. He seems safe, but he's not safe from himself. And we are not safe from ourselves because our nature sees things and wants it, and then we take it. We all share a far greater capacity for evil than we might think. We might think we would never do something like that. We're not like David. But how many times have we heard that? There's a mass shooting at a school and the report from the family and from the friends and from the teacher. He wouldn't hurt a fly. He would never do something like that. We all share far greater capacity for evil than we might think. Our natures have been corrupted because we've rejected God and we face the same situation. Our sexual desires have been distorted. The goodness of sex has become something selfish. And sex has been turned just into pleasure. Something to be taken, rather to be given in the union of marriage between a man and a woman in which God has designed. Just look at the rampant 
statistics of pornography. Here's a few stats. We're not going to get into the money or how many people at large use it. But hear this. People ages 13 to 24 believe not recycling is worse than watching pornography. One in five youth pastors struggle with the use of pornography on a regular basis. One in seven senior pastors struggle with pornography on a regular basis. If we're just talking about America, that is over 50,000 Christian leaders of the church. 64% of Christian men say they watch porn at least once a month. That's 64% of Christian men. 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. God designed sex to be the selfless union between a man and a woman in marriage. And also a place for the security of having children in this family bond. God made boundaries, proper boundaries, for his own glory and for our flourishing. And when we take God out of the picture, and we just see something, we want it and we take it, we don't include God in that conversation or in that thought process, things break, things are broken. If this is you and you're struggling, I would encourage you to pick up a book called The Meaning of Marriage. The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. It'll help you understand the gospel and its place in marriage, whether in your marriage or in singleness or in your widowhood or divorced state. The Meaning of Marriage is a great resource. I encourage you to reach out to the elders of the church. We don't have all the answers but may we, may we walk with you in prayer and biblical guidance and how we can come alongside each other and carrying one another's burden. So that's myself, Tony Enns, or Andrew Stark. We have to take whatever steps are necessary to do what Scripture describes as running from our sexual sin. That's in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Run, flee, do not entertain it, do not excuse it. Stop. Because when it comes to sexual sin, we're like a bug flying around and we see the bug zapper, it's beautiful and you're attracted to it and when you get there, you die. Run. And these things come from within us. James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Jesus raises the standard in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. But I say to you, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If we even look and think about someone with sexual desires in our mind, we have done what David has done. David sinned against God, and so have we. Yet, yet God had promised that David's kingdom would be established forever. 
God said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, Your house, your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. God made this promise to David that your kingdom will know no end. It will be eternal kingdom forever. This was before David and Bathsheba. How will an eternal kingdom come through this sinner, this failure, this flawed king? Is God going to keep his promise to David? Is he going to keep the promise? Or has he fallen so far from grace that there's no possibility of return? Is God going to keep his promise? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. God is going to establish his eternal kingdom through flawed people like King David and like you and me. And why does God do this? Because the grace of God is even more spectacular than David's failure or our failure. God will establish David's kingdom forever in keeping his own promise because his grace, his mercy, his might, his power is greater than our flaws and is greater than our failure. David's sin will be dealt with. David does become repentant and mourns over what he has done in sinning against God. And God shows that his love and his mercy is greater than our failure by sending the ultimate king to deal with our sin and establishing a kingdom through King Jesus that will last forever through the bloodline of King David in this mess. Jesus Christ will be a direct descendant of King David. We go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. God used this situation. Though he meant it for evil, God meant it for good and brings along the long-awaited king and messiah. Romans chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. God promises good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. And he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And unlike David, this true and better king. And unlike us, he is without sin. He is without sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Even though David sinned greatly against God, God does not give up on his own promise. Would we rest assured 
that when we fail and when we sin against God, and we do, may we be quick to confess it to God. And would we strive to surround ourselves with a community where we can be open with one another. Find someone you trust. Build a relationship. This is why community groups are so important that you can build these relationships where you can be honest and open with each other. You can laugh together. You can cry together. And together we carry one another's burdens because you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You don't have to carry the shame of what we've done. It no longer defines us. Yes, we struggle, but Christ killed the sin. And one day there will be a time when the power, the penalty, and presence of sin will be eradicated forever. And in this time and in this life, we lean on Jesus Christ, not our own efforts, that we must kill our sin. We must kill it. Make war with your sin. Jesus is talking about cutting off your hand, plow, plucking out your eyes. This is not literal, but that's the type of demeanor you have towards your sin. You take it into your backyard and you put a gun in his mouth and shoot it and kill it. Sin is insane. We have no reason to be in it, but we will fall into it. And we have a Savior who has taken the penalty of our unrighteousness and exchanged it for his righteousness. And by faith in him alone, if you're a believer here, you've placed your faith in Jesus and he's exchanged his, unright- his righteousness for our unrighteousness and we are justified. Justified, declared innocent before God. And out of our justification, we work out how we live. This is what we call sanctification. with the power of the Holy Spirit, as we open up the word of God as individuals and in community, we are transformed from one degree of glory of God to another. This is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, can say in the New Testament, do you not know, brothers and sisters, that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? That we turn away. We turn away from the sin which we love to a Savior, which we love infinitely more. And when we see ourselves going through that path of seeing something, kill it right then and there. Don't move up that ladder to wanting it and taking it. The gospel of Jesus is for each of us because we are hopeless to save ourselves. There is one who is sent on our behalf to deal with our sin once and for all. Would you know this deeply? Would it transform you profoundly? And would you live for Christ and not our own desires, but for his glory, his renown, that Jesus Christ's fame would go throughout our city and the Yukon, that we would see disciples made. We would see people who didn't previously believe in Jesus follow him. And that person shares his, the good news of the gospel with another person, and would churches be formed here and around the world to declare his glory? Not the glory of a preacher, not the glory of a church, not the glory of a book, but the glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Please pray with me.
Heavenly Father, would we find rest in knowing that you have accomplished for us once and for all what we could never, what we could never accomplish for ourselves. I pray that the story of King David would help us reflect on our own hearts and not be deceived in thinking we won't do something because of our upbringing or where we live or where we go to church or who we watch on TV. Would we know and admit that we are fallen? Would we take responsibility for our sin and lay it down at the cross? We exalt your mighty name, Heavenly Father. Would you be the king of our lives, that we would serve you and love you above all things? In your name we pray. Amen.